And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Sean Rittnar, Professor of Economics, Grove City College. Dr. Rittnar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You know, there seems to be a range of... um, Today we're going to talk about economics, obviously, but the... um, the effect of government and uh, reaching into our lives, either deeply or maybe not too much, depending on what country you're in, sometimes it's a totalitarianism, other times it's like a minimal involvement. Um, you've done some studies recently. I believe you're on summer vacation from the college, but you're not wasting any time, and you're doing some scholarly work, and you're looking at this um, so-called interventionism and statism. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with our listeners some of some of your research and what you've been uh, working on. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, the uh, main topic that I've been looking at uh, for this summer, I have, summer I have a different sort of project I'm working on. This summer I'm working on a project to try to investigate and sort of give examples of how um, in our current economic situation we didn't get here sort of overnight. Uh, we didn't get here um, just by someone flipping on a switch. Uh, we got here through a series of what we could call progressive interventions, uh, interventions being when the government uh, intervenes in the economy and either regulates it or uh, controls it in some way uh, or simply engages in you know, confiscatory taxation or gives subsidies or intervenes in the economy in some way that alters the actual uh, activities of, of free people. And what is, you know, uh, 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 what should one say, a, a danger in any of those types of policies is is that people, I think, in general have this idea, you know, kind of the way we do things in our own lives, well, you know, we want to go on a, on a, say, a family vacation. We're not exactly sure which route to take. Well, we've always gone one way, but there's a lot of construction. Let's try this other route. And, you know, if it doesn't work, well, we'll just we'll do something different. We'll do something. We'll go somewhere different the next time or whatever. And that's kind of the way we do things. But when we have economic policy, things aren't that simple because every time the government intervenes or any economic policy of any sort always has real consequences that then people react to. For instance, if there's a situation where there's a social problem that people perceive related to an economic issue, maybe people don't feel like, you know, uh, there's certain people that aren't able to get enough of particular goods, maybe some basic food staples, milk and butter and uh, hamburger or whatever. And so the question is, how do we solve that problem? How do we solve that problem? And there are different ways in society that people can do that. One is the way of the free society, which is entrepreneurial, and that is where entrepreneurs see people have these needs, and then they see a profit opportunity. If we can provide and we satisfy these needs, then the people who are their consumers, they benefit. The entrepreneurs themselves, they benefit by earning profits, and it's a win-win situation. Uh, Some problems are situations where Uh, They can be satisfied through what we could call non-market but civic institutions. For instance, the the problem of sin cannot be satisfied through a market situation. That's something that the church ministers to by preaching the gospel. Uh, And so um, in that sense, uh, you know, there's no no corporation 
that can that can save anybody. Um, and of course, it's it's the Holy Spirit working through the church that saves people. So there are uh, non-market civic institutions like the churches or you know clubs or neighborhood associations, charities that can say minister to the poor fairly effectively. But oftentimes, people say, "Well, we got this problem. It's so big. We need the government to step in." And we need the government to to uh, to do something. That's you know um, when the when the meltdown hit in two thousand eight. Uh, it's like the 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 unpardonable sin was to have the government do nothing and just allow the economy to work. We have to do something. And so there's always calls for the government to step in. And whether we like it or not, um, it's in the interest of politicians and lobbyists to repeatedly find crises that need fixing. Um, because if there's no more problems for them to solve, they'd be out of a job and out of money, and so they don't want that. And so the government will find a crisis if there isn't one that actually exists, but or if there is a real problem that exists, people will want government help. The government then intervenes. Often what the, the government does is they respond to symptoms, not to the root of the problem. For instance, when the Fed increased the money supply, uh, and that's what they do on a regular basis. They create money, and then at the same time, people say we need the Fed to fight inflation. <laughs> well, that's the Fed causes inflation, but they're going to fight inflation at the same time. And then, you know, one way they tried to fight inflation, we talked about this before in the 1970s, was a, a series of massive price controls, price ceilings. And instead of instead of stopping the inflation and abolishing the Fed, they, let's put price ceilings on. The kind of band-aid over the price increases. Well, this caused shortages. Um, it caused layoffs, and so there are always these negative consequences. That then uh, people call for even more intervention because they don't they don't see the link often between the negative consequences of the policy and the policy itself. And so the government then is called upon to intervene even more to fix the problems caused by the initial intervention. And this creates additional negative consequences, which call for increased intervention. And eventually, if, if, if we don't stop the process, the entire uh, economy can be regulated so much that ownership is sort of on paper only, but uh, de facto the government regulates or controls the entire economy. Um, that's, that's sort of the way things went in Nazi Germany and, and in fascist uh, Italy. Um, it's not that bad here yet, but we've been moving in that direction, I would say, probably certainly the last, well, over the last 40 years. Yes. Um, I have so much to learn about this, but um, I'm on your wavelength. I just love uh, listening to you. Um, can you explain, in one point in particular, increasing the money supply, uh, as the Fed gets involved in that and controls our economy that way, how does that work? How does it flesh out? Well, there's a couple ways. Um, the Fed can be proactive, and in the sense when they try to be proactive, they simply literally create money uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing, uh, <laughs> like they're God. And they just hit a few uh, keys on a computer that creates uh, money in their account, and then they spend that money buying up Government securities um, during the during the melt or the, right after the meltdown, they were buying up these uh, these uh, junk derivatives. But um, but under normal circumstances, they buy government securities like treasury bonds, and that is money then that is injected into commercial bank reserves. So you know PNC Bank and and First National Bank and uh, Citibank, they get injections of 
bank reserves that didn't exist before. And then on the basis of that, then they can further lend out money, uh, create loans themselves out of nothing, create more loans than in total than there is money that's been injected into the system because we run on a fractional reserve basis. So there can there's more there's more checking accounts out there. There's more checking account dollars than the banks have dollars in their vaults to to cover those checking accounts. And so they can loan out money in the form of checking accounts, demand deposits, and that's how that's how inflation grows. Now, the banks, knowing that the Fed will inject money into the system to keep interest rates at a well, uh, you know, artificially low level, the banks themselves will create money. They they can be proactive too, and they see profit opportunities. They create. They think there's profit opportunities. They create money out of thin air. They loan it out, and then they can sell off bonds uh, that they have to the Fed or to uh, the bond market. Eventually, those bonds get sopped up by reserves that the Fed creates and injects. But either way, the whole thing's sort of backed up and backstopped by the Fed, creating money out of thin air that they inject into the commercial banking system that then facilitates expansion of loans and credit. And it's this expansion of loans and credit is always in the form of dollars that people actually use to, you know, they, they spend money on stuff. They borrow money to buy houses, businesses borrow money to expand operations. When they do that, that creates more dollars, and so people receive more dollars, and so their monetary income goes up. So what do they do? Well, they spend more, and that is what drives up overall prices, is when people spend this new money. And since it's not just you know, one person that gets this new money, but you know, a number of people throughout the country that get it, as the money gets spent over and over, that's what drives up prices in general. Okay, that's helpful. So uh, let me just go back. So the, the Fed creates the money. Yes. Um, they buy up T bonds. Yes. Um, somehow that flows into commercial bank reserves. Yes. And then loans are created. Um, but when they create the money, is that just a keystroke, or are they actually printing the bills? How does that work? That that when they when they when they engage in this type of activity called open market operations, they are just created by a keystroke. It's all on computer. <laughs> Years ago, I told my son, he was a, he still is a whiz on the computer. I told him, I said, if you know the right sequence of keys, keystrokes on your computer, uh, you can become a millionaire, I told him. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and, and I was just kind of teasing, but there is truth to that. And I'm talking about the honest way. I'm not talking about hacking or anything like that. Uh, the right keystrokes, you could buy the right um, stocks and whatnot. And, you know, um, but I'm troubled by something. Here's another story. Um, sometimes when I'm at the bank taking out some cash for running money, I'll tell the attendant that, you know, there's nothing behind this money. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just teasing with him or her. <laughs> and then if if they take the bait, I'll talk about uh, what little I know. I said, you know, we used to have a gold standard, but it's not based on that anymore. Now, is it true there's nothing behind our money besides public perception? Well, I mean, in a sense, yeah, yeah, that is true. That is true. I mean, there's nothing behind the paper dollars or checking accounts uh, at all. Now, in some sense, whatever whatever is money, that's going to be true of money too. In other words, when we were yes. when we were under the gold standard, and and the gold standard and the silver standard came about because people actually used gold and silver for money. I mean, right. they they used gold coins and silver coins, and then large uh, you know large 
transactions between entities uh, were cleared through, you know, uh, ownership of gold bullion and that kind of thing. Then when the gold was money, there was, in some sense, there's nothing to back up the gold either. Right, right. Right. But what happened was the, the paper money that we began to use, they were that started out as just bank notes. In other words, those were sort of like money, money warehouse receipts that people could take to a bank at any time and get the gold money or the silver money went on demand. Right? And so in that, that's when people understood that, well, okay, there's gold or silver backing up this banknote because the, the paper note really was a money substitute. It wasn't, it wasn't money proper. Mm-hmm. But then what happened is over the course of time, we, we went off the gold standard domestically in the 1930s under FDR, and then we completely left the last vestiges of the gold system and uh, the gold standard internationally in 1971 when Nixon closed the gold window. From that point on, our money was only the paper dollar, only the numbers in our checking account. And yeah, yeah there is nothing. There's nothing behind that. We can't. If we if we try to go say to a Federal Reserve bank and redeem, I'd like to redeem this this ten dollars. They would look at you and laugh. Sure. If you if you forced it on them, they would just simply give you another ten dollar bill because that's all there is. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. I have a hard time getting my arms around it. But, you know, um, I'm just an average Joe on the street, and my perception is, well, I've got that paper dollar, and it'll, it'll buy something. And that's that's my uh, confidence in, in in the dollar, I guess. Um, yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, the, the, the reason why we still continue to hold dollars, we have dollars in our checking accounts, is because they still do maintain purchasing power. Yeah. Not, not nearly as much as they did in years gone by because the government continues to create more of these dollars. But, I mean, and that's the big danger of going off the gold standard. Once you go to pure paper dollars or just, you know, creating money with a keystroke, mm-hmm. well, it's super cheap to create more dollars, which means it's super easy to inflate the money supply. Sure. You know, yeah. And so the money supply gets the money, the value of the money gets debased. Now, what about um, there's a movement afoot to uh, eliminate the Fed, or or words to that effect. I think you even alluded to it. Yes. Um, for people, uh, it would be fine with me. Let her rip. I would say, but for people that are concerned about that and concerned that the whole system would collapse and all of that, what kind of assurances would you give them as an economist, trained professional? Uh, that really, here's why we don't need the Fed. Well, uh, it's uh, the main reason is that you know money is an economic good, just like other economic goods. The laws of economics, the law of supply and demand, the law of market utility, applies to it as much as it applies to any, any other good. Now, it's it's different. Money is a medium of exchange, so it's not the same as a consumer, you know, pure consumer good or a producer good, but it is an economic good, and so. You know, when you think about uh, just our, our normal lives in general, what are things that we really need on a daily basis? We need food, we need clothing, we need shelter, um, and and the vast majority of us on a daily basis. Like if I if if um, you know, just a couple days ago, my wife and I were talking, and we we're going to have some people over. We need we need some hamburger, and we need some chips because we have we have a little picnic. Well. We weren't wringing our hands and and worrying that because the there there you know there wasn't a, a central hamburger making plant or a right. central chip producer that we were not going to have the quote unquote optimal amount of burgers and chips. We know we could go to the store, several stores in our town, in fact, and mm-hmm. we're a small. We have you know ten thousand people in Grove City or thereabouts, and you know we've got three or four or five different places we can go uh, within a few minutes, 
and find the hamburger we need, find the chips we want, find the drinks, whatever, the paper plates and everything. Well, there's no reason to think that if we had a free market in money production that we wouldn't have a similar outcome, that the entrepreneurs who would have a comparative advantage in producing money that people perceive as a good product, a quality product, they would uh, be successful in the market. And the only way that they would maintain their profitability long-term is providing people what they want, which would be, in this case, money that is uh, of solid value, money that people could trust. In other words, if, it, if, we were, if we were back on a metallic standard, if it said that this is a, an ounce of silver, it really was an ounce of silver because this person has a reputation of, of uh, being honest in his dealings. And um, you know, the idea that somehow, that somehow the whole system would come crashing down, well, in a way, parts of the system would come crashing down, but the, you have to think about it. who is it the people that are most worried about the Fed going away? It's the people that want to control the entire economy. Right, right. You know, the people that want to have the, the, their hands on the, the levers of, of economic power. And so, for instance, people like, uh, well, the former uh, chairman of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, or now Janet Yellen, of course, they don't want the Fed to go away uh, because they, they like the idea of being able to, to control to the best they can the system and they need the fed that's their avenue by which they control uh, the or well, attempt sure. to control the economic system sure now um I, I guess you could also argue that we haven't always had the fed right and and we got along just fine uh yeah i mean in general uh we didn't get the you know, fed wasn't established in 1913 i mean certainly the system wasn't perfect that's that's a whole other case where you've got again this example of of sort of progressive interventionism. Yeah. Um, we haven't had very many periods in our history where we could say we had a pure free market in money production. It's more relatively free or relatively less free. The government, almost always the government, a different, well, almost always throughout our history, the government has privileged banks in certain ways uh, that made it, that they gave them incentives to inflate more than they otherwise should. But the, the ball really got rolling during the Civil War uh, with the National Banking Act that was created by the government and signed into law by, by Lincoln. And that, that really uh, was an effort to centralize the banking system without, it's like partially centralized the banking system, sort of partially socialized the banks in the national banking system without having a pure central bank. Now, what that did is that type of intervention removed some of the constraints on inflation that banks would face in a in, in a purely free market. In other words, uh, you have a, the, the, the national banks. The, the national banking acts provided for what was called reserve city banks. These large city banks that were sort of uh, sort of the lender of last resort. It wasn't it wasn't foolproof, but they were the ones that sort of bank that, that sort of that that, that backstopped the entire system. Well, those banks then. Uh, helped facilitate more widespread general inflation. And so we did have a series of financial panics from uh, 1873 on about every, it seemed like about every 11, 12 years until ni- in, you know, in 1907. And 1907, I think, really spooked a lot of people. And that, of course, right around the Progressive Era, sort of provided the last impetus to fully move to the Federal Reserve. But, be that as it may, before the Federal Reserve, you could look back to the period from, say, 1865 to 
1918, I just saw some statistics in that. Somebody identified this, and I was with good reason, as one of the most uh, prosperous periods of our history in terms of economic growth. We had higher rates of economic growth during that period, and we didn't have a central bank controlling the whole thing. We didn't have, we didn't have the Fed. Uh, we didn't have a, a, a chairman of the Fed always watching the numbers, trying to decide, should we increase the uh, the money supply by this amount or decrease it by this amount, or should we keep the interest rates artificially low? Uh, you know, it, the, the economy... The economy is made up of people voluntarily getting together to exchange, and we don't need a Federal Reserve to do that. No, no. You know, stepping back, somebody might say, well, why are you guys so uh, so concerned about this? And the answer to me is simple. It's Bible-based, and that is our scriptures tell us we are to have honest weights and measures. That means honest money. There's not to be theft, whether it's the government stealing or me personally stealing. It's wrong, and covetousness is wrong, where I want to have something somebody else has, and I pine away, and I lack the the grace of rejoicing when someone else is blessed, and I don't want their stuff. You know, those biblical guidelines, and there's others, flow right into prescribing, if you will, a money system that is um, that turns out to be very free market and minimal government uh, intervention. Oh, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. No. The, I mean, the, the the Christian ethic of, of of property precludes us from panting after the goods of others and and taking the goods no. of others. And like you said, I, I think that that people have fallen into this habit of thinking that. Uh, well, yeah, that's certainly true for us as individual private citizens, but somehow if it's done through a collective, through the voting process, then, it, then it's A-OK. Yeah. That, and, and, you know, it, it's funny, too. I mean, we wouldn't, most people would not say that, well, the best thing for us to do is to, is to get people to church. Therefore, we need to pass a law requiring people to go to church. I mean, most people recognize that that's not going to that 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 that's neither right nor even practical. No, no. Uh, but they're e- they're willing to they're willing to say, well, um, you know, uh, we need to make sure that everybody gets health care or something. Mm-hmm. Well, then we're going to pass a law requiring people to pay for health care. I mean, it's it's it we're, we're we tend to be not terribly consistent. Where the ethic of Christian ethic of property is. I always, the more I've studied, the more I clear I, I think it is, and that is we're not allowed to steal from, from anybody, and rulers are not exempt. It doesn't say thou shalt not steal except by majority vote. Yes, oh, so very true. And uh, I hate to see when governments come in and take people's property for, for various reasons. Um, this whole thing of a safety net, of of and by the way we got about 2 minutes left. Oh my goodness. Um safety net and people are concerned about that. How does the Christian world view answer that rather than having heavy government doing it? Oh well the Christian world view uh, basically it boils down to love your neighbor as yourself. Oh yes. And and who is your neighbor? The neighbor is the one that you see uh, as you uh, as you become aware of him. Yeah. And so Again, the, the the Good Samaritan was never called to make somebody else pay for his charity. Right. The Good Samaritan gave his own means. So, um, 
the way to the way that we would handle the way the Christian should or the way that the scriptures call stand charity is this, if we see people in real need, then we should minister to them. We're definitely not right. to say, you know, God bless you, go on your way. Uh, we're to meet their real physical need as we're able and 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 then show them the love of Christ. Yes. That's that's vastly different than creating a state enterprise and forcing people to uh to 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 you know to to give money to the government to bankroll a vast bureaucracy so that you know in the name of helping some uh where in many cases things you know it do, it doesn't actually it doesn't actually uh even help the people we're supposed to be helping. Mm. Well, today we've been talking with Dr. Sean Rittenauer. He is professor of economics, Grove City College. He's been a guest in the past, and it's always enjoyable. Dr. Rittenauer, uh, really quick, could you tell the folks about a book that you've written about economics that they could order? Yes. Uh, I wrote a book uh, a few years ago now called Foundations of Economics, A Christian View. It is an introductory book on economics set uh, explicitly within a Christian theological and philosophical framework, showing how the laws of economics flow out of the nature of man as we've been created in the image of God. And then we also look at economic policy in light of the Christian uh, ethic of private property. So again, that's Foundation of Economics, and the last name is Rittenauer, and that's R-I-T-E-N-O-U-R. Uh, Dr. Rittenauer, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure. And dear listener, join us next week at this same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. Some trust in the chariot. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Trust in the work they do. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. By His grace, all the work is through. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Sing, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. His love never fails. His name will always prevail. We trust in the name of the Lord our some trust in the wealth of things. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. A name worth more than anything. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Sing, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. His love never fails. His name will always prevail. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord.